we continue with part two of Graf v. De Joy. In the briefs and at argument, little space was devoted to the question of determining when increased costs amount to an undue hardship under the statute. But a single but oft-quoted sentence in the opinion of the court, if taken literally, suggested that even a pittance might be too much for an employer to be forced to endure. The line read as follows. To require TWA to bear more than a de minimis cost in order to give Hardison Saturdays off is an undue hardship. Although this line would later be viewed by many lower courts as the authoritative interpretation of the statutory term, undue hardship. It is doubtful that it was meant to take on that large role. In responding to Justice Marshall's dissent, the court described the governing standard quite differently, stating three times that an accommodation is not required when it entails substantial costs or expenditures. This formulation suggests that an employer may be required to bear costs and make expenditures that are not substantial. Of course, there is a big difference between costs and expenditures that are not substantial and those that are de minimis, which is to say, so very small or trifling that they are not even worth noticing. The court's response to Justice Marshall's estimate of the extra costs that TWA would have been required to foot is also telling. The majority did not argue that Justice Marshall's math produced considerably more than a de minimis cost, as it certainly did. Instead, the court responded that Justice Marshall's calculation involved assumptions that were not feasible under the circumstances and would have produced a different conflict with the seniority rights of other employees. Ultimately, then, it is not clear that any of the possible accommodations would have actually solved Hardison's problem without transgressing seniority rights. The Hardison court was very clear that those rights were off-limits. Its guidance on undue hardship in situations not involving seniority rights is much less clear. Section C even though Hardison's reference to de minimis was undercut by conflicting language and was fleeting in comparison to its discussion of the principal issue of seniority rights, lower courts have latched on to de minimis as the governing standard. To be sure, as the Solicitor General notes, some lower courts have understood that the protection for religious adherence is greater than more than de minimis might suggest when read in isolation. But a bevy of diverse religious organizations has told this court that the de minimis test has blessed the denial of even minor accommodations in many cases, making it harder for members of minority faiths to enter the job market. The EEOC has also accepted Hardison as prescribing a more than de minimis cost test, but has tried in some ways to soften its impact. It has specifically cautioned, as has the Solicitor General in this case, 
against extending the phrase to cover such things as the administrative costs involved in reworking schedules, the infrequent or temporary payment of premium wages for a substitute, and voluntary substitutes and swaps when they are not contrary to a bona fide seniority system. Nevertheless, some courts have rejected even the EEOC's gloss on de minimis, and in other cases, courts have rejected accommodations that the EEOC's guidelines consider to be ordinarily required, such as the relaxation of dress codes and coverage for occasional absences. Members of this court have warned that if the de minimis rule represents the holding of Hardison, the decision might have to be reconsidered. Today, the Solicitor General disavows its prior position that Hardison should be overruled, but only on the understanding that Hardison does not compel courts to read the more-than-de minimis standard literally or in a manner that undermines Hardison's references to substantial cost. With the benefit of comprehensive briefing and oral argument, we agree. Part 3 We hold that showing more than a de minimis cost, as that phrase is used in common parlance, does not suffice to establish undue hardship under Title VII. Hardison cannot be reduced to that one phrase— in describing an employer's undue hardship defense, Hardison referred repeatedly to substantial burdens, and that formulation better explains the decision. We therefore, like the parties, understand Hardison to mean that undue hardship is shown when a burden is substantial in the overall context of an employer's business. This fact-specific inquiry comports with both Hardison and the meaning of undue hardship in ordinary speech. Section A As we have explained, we do not write on a blank slate in determining what an employer must prove to defend a denial of a religious accommodation, but we think it reasonable to begin with Title VII's text. After all, as we have stressed over and over again in recent years, statutory interpretation must begin with and ultimately heed what a statute actually says. Here, the key statutory term is undue hardship. In common parlance, a hardship is, at a minimum, something hard to bear. Other definitions go further. But under any definition, a hardship is more severe than a mere burden. So even if Title VII said only that an employer need not be made to suffer a hardship, an employer could not escape liability simply by showing that an accommodation would impose some sort of additional costs. Those costs would have to rise to the level of hardship, and adding the modifier undue means that the requisite burden, privation, or adversity must rise to an excessive or unjustifiable level. The government agrees, noting that undue hardship means something greater than hardship. When undue hardship is understood in this way, it means something very different from a burden that is merely more than de minimis, 
i.e. something that is very small or trifling. So considering ordinary meaning while taking hardison as a given, we are pointed toward something closer to hardison's references to substantial additional costs or substantial expenditures. Similarly, while we do not rely on the pre-1972 EEOC decisions described above to define the term, we do observe that these decisions often found that accommodations that entailed substantial costs were required. Nothing in this history plausibly suggests that undue hardship in Title VII should be read to mean anything less than its meaning in ordinary use. In short, no factor discussed by the parties, the ordinary meaning of undue hardship, the EEOC guidelines that Hardison concluded that the 1972 amendment ratified, the use of that term by the EEOC prior to those amendments, and the common use of that term in other statutes, supports reducing Hardison to its more than a de minimis cost line. Section B. In this case, both parties agree that the de minimis test is not right, but they differ slightly in the alternative language they prefer. Groff likes the phrase, significant difficulty or expense. The government disavowing its prior position that Title VII's text requires overruling Hardison points us to Hardison's repeated references to substantial expenditures or substantial additional costs. We think it is enough to say that an employer must show that the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. What matters more than a favored synonym for undue hardship, which is the actual text, is that courts must apply the test in a manner that takes into account all relevant factors in the case at hand, including the particular accommodations at issue and their practical impact in light of the nature, size, and operating cost of an employer. Section C. The main difference between the parties lies in the further steps they would ask us to take in elaborating upon their standards. Groff would not simply borrow the phrase significant difficulty or expense from the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, but would have us instruct lower courts to draw upon decades of ADA case law. The government, on the other hand, requests that we opine that the EEOC's construction of Hardison has been basically correct. Both of these suggestions go too far. We have no reservations in saying that a good deal of the EEOC's guidance in this area is sensible and will, in all likelihood, be unaffected by our clarifying decision today. After all, as a public advocate for employees' rights, much of the EEOC's guidance has focused on what should be accommodated. Accordingly, today's clarification may prompt little, if any, change in the agency's guidance explaining why no undue hardship is imposed by temporary costs, voluntary shift swapping, occasional shift swapping, or administrative costs.
but it would not be prudent to ratify in toto a body of EEOC interpretation that has not had the benefit of the clarification we adopt today. What is most important is that undue hardship in Title VII means what it says, and courts should resolve whether a hardship would be substantial in the context of an employer's business in the common-sense manner that it would use in applying any such test. Section D. The erroneous de minimis interpretation of Hardison may have had the effect of leading courts to pay insufficient attention to what the actual text of Title VII means with regard to several recurring issues. Since we are now brushing away that mistaken view of Hardison's holding, clarification of some of those issues, in line with the party's agreement in this case, is in order. First, on the second question presented, both parties agree that the language of Title VII requires an assessment of a possible accommodation's effect on the conduct of the employer's business. As the Solicitor General put it, not all impacts on coworkers are relevant, but only coworker impacts that go on to affect the conduct of the business. So, an accommodation's effect on coworkers may have ramifications for the conduct of the employer's business, but a court cannot stop its analysis without examining whether that further logical step is shown in a particular case. On this point, the Solicitor General took pains to clarify that some evidence that occasionally is used to show impacts on coworkers is off the table for consideration. Specifically, a coworker's dislike of religious practice and expression in the workplace, or the mere fact of an accommodation, is not cognizable to factor into the undue hardship inquiry. To the extent that this was not previously clear, we agree. An employer who fails to provide an accommodation has a defense only if the hardship is undue, and a hardship that is attributable to employee animosity to a particular religion, to religion in general, or to the very notion of accommodating religious practice, cannot be considered undue. If bias or hostility to a religious practice or a religious accommodation provided a defense to a reasonable accommodation claim, Title VII would be at war with itself. Second, as the Solicitor General's authorities underscore, Title VII requires that an employer reasonably accommodate an employee's practice of religion, not merely that it assess the reasonableness of a particular possible accommodation or accommodations. This distinction matters. Faced with an accommodation request like Groff's, it would not be enough for an employer to conclude that forcing other employees to work overtime would constitute an undue hardship. Consideration of other options, such as voluntary shift swapping, would also be necessary. Part 4 Having clarified the Title VII Undue Hardship Standard, we think it appropriate to leave the context-specific application of that clarified standard to the lower courts in the first instance. 
the Third Circuit assumed that Hardison prescribed a more than a de minimis cost test, and this may have led the court to dismiss a number of possible accommodations, including those involving the cost of incentive pay or the administrative costs of coordination with other nearby stations with a broader set of employees. Without foreclosing the possibility that USPS will prevail, we think it appropriate to leave it to the lower courts to apply our clarified, context-specific standard, and to decide whether any further factual development is needed. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is vacated, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.